talking today about God and government, the third institution of delegated divine, divine authority, God and government. And this study is from the sequence of things in the, in the history of God's works recorded historically in narrative in Genesis. This is not a study of Genesis. This is an application, an ethical application of Genesis. And it is not what you would think to say God and government starts with an individual's conscience and volition with God. That the second thing God made for, for government, for authority uh, in human history is God made woman. And that doesn't mean he made an authority over a man, but just the opposite. He made husband and wife, and there's headship and bodyship, as we said. And then he, those people made children. God used them to bring forth children And that's another institution of authority. And we see this again and again in Scripture where God is saying there's a right way to exercise this responsibility of the ability to make choices. Every single one of you is a a functionary in governance because you have the capacity to make decisions. And that ability to make decisions is the basic building block, the basic unit of government. Self-government, what I do with me. And everything we're studying is a reflection on how that's supposed to be exercised. And as authority increases, as you have, you go up from just the individual to husband, wife, parents, children, civil government, you see that in all these institutions, the individual's making decisions. And the question is, will you make your choice to please God? Do you understand what that capacity is about? That is such an important thing to grasp. So when you get up to the very top of the state, we don't have a top of state individual. We don't. We call the head of, the head of state the, the executive, but it, it, he can't make law. We think we are, are operating with executive orders like the head of state can make law, but that's not the design. So, so when you get to the, to the king in a monarchy, you still have one person in God, what I do before God. And that's the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. The king and how he relates to God and what that means for the people. That's God's design. So see what I mean? That individual responsibility thing between you and God, that volition, is the centerpiece of all of it. Even when you go up to the head of state. It's still a question of what are you doing with the responsibility you've been given. And so I think it's so helpful to think about that because we're arguing in, the, in our founding documents and those who still believe that those are valuable, um, a small, a, a bare majority of the population perhaps, we think that those are encapsulating protections on the conscience of the individual's walk with God. And that's what we mean by freedom. When we say freedom, we don't mean license to do whatever you want if you want to live out the wickedness of, you know, the the sinful impulses you have. We mean freedom to serve God according to your conscience. That's what it's about. That's what our government was designed for. And I'm trying to argue that there's a reason why a a biblically-minded populace embrace this form of government And that's really the issue uh, so much in our questions about government is protections of conscience. Today, the third divine institution, that's parents over children. 
That is under attack in many different directions. And we talked last time in an opening image about the mama bear principle of don't, don't get between a brown bear and her babies because they, she will kill you. But we're talking about this institution of divine authority and how it relates to government. And this is, this is not the way we organize our lives. Now look up here. We don't organize our thinking and say government is your free will and then your marriage and then your, you and your kids. We don't say that. That's not how we think about it. Government's a separate topic. I don't want to think about government. I'll pay my taxes and, you know, walk in the lines and they won't mess with me, which is a good, I'd say a generally good approach, except that you are supposed to function in the government. You have the franchise in this country. But we're just saying we don't connect family to government like we should. And it is a governmental structure. And I'll show you how they connect today. I think it's a pretty cool place that they connect. So in summary, from what we've done, we said Ephesians 6, 4 establishes the goal of being a mom and dad. Ephesians 6, 4 establishes the goal. It doesn't give you the nuts and bolts how to do it. It just tells you what you're doing. What is my mission as a parent? We said before, we said, is it to make sure they survive to adulthood? Feed them, protect them. Is that the goal? No, these are necessary tasks that serve the goal. What is the goal? Ephesians 6, 4, I think, tells you it's to train them and correct them in the Lord. To rear them in the training and correction of the Lord is really the goal. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but rear them in the training and correction of the Lord. That's my translation. And we looked closely at those words for training and correction. Training, paideia, the training that a child receives before, you know, before puberty, that, that elementary school level. It's that paideia. It's that hand-over-hand training of the Lord. Correction, nuthesia. Correction is where they're off the path and we put them back on the path. You get back on this path. And that's that's also hand-in-hand hand with, with that child training. And so, but these are of the Lord. It's about the individual child's volition for how he chooses to serve God. That's the objective. That of the Lord part is the key to Ephesians 6.4. So we're setting conditions, not provoking them to anger. We're not stimulating their sin nature to express itself. We're saying, no, we resist the lust of our sin nature and we serve God and we love God and the things that the scriptures say. And we compared Deuteronomy 6.5 and 6 with Ephesians 6.4. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words I'm commanding you today will be on your heart and you'll teach them to your sons all the time in Deuteronomy 6. This is how God would promote multi-generational love for himself in the people so that they would live long in the land. And so we, we've also connected this to, as Paul does in verse 3 of Ephesians 6, to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. But what we're saying is this is the goal of parenting, that the children are trained to love God, to fear God, to serve God, and that's their choice. That's your choice. So if you know what you're dealing with, I'm dealing with a human being with the capacity to choose. That human being has a purpose to serve God. I, as a parent, am designed by God to hand over hand help this little child learn to serve God in terms of restraining the sinful lust, in terms of turning your attention to the, the Creator, in terms of His Word. And so if that's the goal of parenthood, with, when they're in the household, if that's the goal, 
right after, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. This is the commandment, first commandment with a promise, honor your father and mother. If that's right, that that's our goal, then we have to rethink our whole societal structure because we don't do it as a culture. We as a civilization do not do Ephesians 6, 4. And you can't say, well, we bring them to church. That's not what we're talking about. Church time, our time in the Word is supposed to be equipping us for a lifetime of service in every aspect of our responsible governance, including how we train our children. In Ephesians 6, 4, we set conditions and we train them to walk in fellowship with God. That's the summary. You set conditions and you train them to walk in fellowship with God. And it's a very challenging thing, as everyone here knows. You've all been children, and you gave your parents great challenges. Many of you have had children, and you, uh, you, you can't believe how hard it is to train them to fear the Lord, to love God, to serve Him. But, and most people and most Christians don't know that, that this is what Ephesians 6.4 is saying, that this was the goal that we were about the whole time. The goal was not that they were the best soccer player they could be, or if we want to be sanctified, the best football player they could be. The goal was not that they could be the, the gymnast or the instrumentalist or all the fun things that are great parts of life that are details in service to the big thing, which is serving God. The goal was not that they were academically rigorous or that they got a good trade and they got a good, good job. The goal of training our children is not that they marry uh, stably, uh, marry in, into a stable marriage, and then they have a good mortgage and a good house, and they are able to put their kids in college. That's not the goal of marriage. Or, or, sorry, of, chair, of parenting. The goal is that the children will walk with God in fellowship. And so, well, that's just too spiritually minded to be any earthly good. No, this is Christian worldview. This is where we as a civilization have come from. And we're done. This culture doesn't know this anymore. And look, look beloved, if you lean on the culture and say, well, is everybody else kind of doing that's what's normal, you'll be very abnormal. You'll be right in line with great abnormality which is ruling the day in which we live. So this is the goal. And finally, in terms of my, my review, the delegated authority structure of parents and children, that we call it divine institution number three. I'm told don't be so technical. Well, let's get technical. Divine institution three. One is you and God. Two is husband and wife. Three is parents and children. These authority structures that God has created and delegated because he's sovereign and all authority proceeds from God. This DI3 governance, okay, is designed, and it's unique this way, to equip children to exercise their volition toward God. Think about it. This governmental structure of family is designed to train children that will not learn it otherwise to walk with God. We're not born walking with God. It's not natural to us. It doesn't occur to us. This is something that requires training. Now, again, I'm not giving you, from Ephesians 6 or anywhere else, the, the steps to take to do this. I'm just saying this is the goal we're running toward. And that's how you drive as you look out on the horizon. Where are we going? You don't need a, a cookbook to do this. You need a goal, and you need to walk with God and think about this is my job. Feel the weight. Moms and dads with kids at home, grandparents that, that are help, trying to help, feel the weight of this is the goal, so what am I doing with the time? And then start managing your time. That's called government. What you do with those resources. I believe that parents with children is a unique institution this way. Human government is nowhere in the Scripture said, designed to train children 
to walk in fellowship with God. It's not the job of the, of the government. Human government in terms of civil government is instituted in Genesis 9 verse 6. Its first function is capital punishment. That's the, that's the first delegation God gave man over man outside of household. Capital punishment. I used to get the word capital punishment and corporal punishment confused. Because we had corporal punishment in our elementary schools in East Texas when I was a kid. But um, you felt like it was capital punishment. Can I tell you a funny story? When I was a little kid, Moselle Johnson Elementary School in Longview, Texas, we had this phenomenally great guy as the principal. He was, I think of this man, Mr. Sachs, as the quintessential principal. He was dignified. He was probably, I thought of him as an elderly man. He's probably younger than I am now. Right? That's not probably, he's probably close to 55 or, or 60 when I was a kid there. But, um, but he, was, he was always in a coat and tie. That's how it was back then. He, um, he always had a smile. He could have been a pastor by his personality, right? And, and I, you know, but personality doesn't make, make you the what you are. But I'm just saying um, he was really a, a great presence. But it was known that if you go to his office for a capital, I mean, corporal punishment, um, that he's going to spank you. And he has a paddle. And um, I don't really call anybody that I know that was spanked by him, but I just remember that was one of the threats. Three check marks on the, on the blackboard in, in my kindergarten class. You're going to go into the coat room with the, with the teacher. She's going to get the other teacher next door or the aide, and the other teacher's going to come in, and she's going to witness you getting three swats with um, a board that has been made by some shop department somewhere the Board of Education. That's how it was, where I was, and that was perfectly legal, and my mother was thoroughly um, you know, committed to this method, and she not only wanted them to spank me if I needed, she said, and be sure I get a phone call so I can spank him when he gets home, you know, that kind of thing, really. My mother once told me she selected my teachers, asked for the teachers I would get in elementary school based on how, how well she thought they could swing a paddle in some cases, but anyway... Um, as Chafer once said about a, in a story about a little boy, I was uh, thoroughly spanked. So, um, so this, uh, this Mr. Saxon character with his paddle, this was back in the days where they still had capital punishment by use of electric chair. We were still doing that. There was a, a man who had killed his child and convicted of it, and they executed him, I think, in 1983 or 4. He killed his kid by poisoning with candy. And, and the story was he died by electrocution. And I remember the night that that happened, and we were talking about, all the kids were talking about this guy was going to be executed with the electric chair. And here's what happened in the urban myths of my elementary school. If you go get corporal, I mean capital punishment, I mean cap, corporal punishment in the, um, in the office with the principal, he has the electric paddle. That was the legend. Everyone believed it. Was this just my elementary school? You don't want to get sent to Mr. Sachs's office because he's got the electric paddle. Isn't that just how little kids are? You can almost see this as like a bad news bears or sandlot conversation. Don't go. You're going to get the... Anyway, and a little, this is why we're all goonies as little kids. But um, We're talking about parents raising their children. Notice I haven't talked about spanking them. I'm, that's not the topic. The purpose of parenting is to spank your kid. No. The purpose of parenting is to not spank your kids. No, the purpose of parenting is to train your kids to worship God to, for life, and you're setting them up. It's kind of like an airplane. It has to take off. 
That's what you're doing. Pre-flight checks, and then the takeoff procedures, and then once they're aloft, ground crew's done. There's nothing else I can do. As God's design of marriage, which is, let's be very offensive to the satanic sensibilities of our day, one man with one woman for life, right? As God's design of marriage is this, and it issues in God's design for parenthood, parents with their children, not the state, not the village. Yeah, we have loved ones and family and friends that help and encourage and support, but it's parents with their children as the institution. If that's true, then we can expect this arrangement to be optimal. Is that a fair uh, conjecture? Now, this is how wisdom works. We take God's word and then we try to practice it. And the practice of God's word in your life, that's wisdom. And the rejection of God's word so that you can't practice it is foolishness. It's idiocy. You will be a fool if you don't receive God's word and then choose to practice it. What are you if you receive God's word but you don't practice it? In a way, you're a worse fool because you could have succeeded, but you failed. So let's apply this idea. One man, one woman training their children in the household. We should expect that to be optimal. And now we're going to start talking about how this affects civil government. This is uh, some numbers from a research study that was done by the Fatherhood Initiative. You can go, I think, fatherhood.org or fatherhoodinitiative.org, and they, they want this to be shared. It's kind of small for you to read, but let me try to read this chart to you. 18.4 18. million children, 18.4 million children, one in four without a biological step or adoptive father in the home, and that is by the U.S. Census Bureau. This was released in August, of 20, August 2022. They say research shows when a child is raised in a father absent home, they are affected in the following ways. Four times greater risk of poverty. The economic consequence of dad not being there for his son. Four times. And, and listen, I'm not talking about any specific individuals. Everybody's got their life and how your life came up. I'm talking about the aggregate. This is what we know. You're four times greater likely to be impoverished for life. More likely to have behavioral problems. Two times greater risk of infant mortality. Whoa. They, they can do that. They can say how many babies die and then how many uh, households don't have fathers where the babies died and versus lived. And it's two times more likely. to. Inf- Why? Well, there's all kinds of factors. There's, there's the economic side. There's um, the stability. There's the relationship stability. There are lots of things. More likely to go to prison. More likely to commit crime. Seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager. Whoa. The correlation, and it doesn't mean causation, but the correlation is that dad isn't home, child is seven times more likely to get pregnant as a teenager. What was wrong with that? Well, I mean, nothing if we're married, except that that's not what's happening. Kids are doing what they have been taught to do. They're assuming they're animals. Animals go by their instincts. We have hormonal urges, and we just do what we want to do. And that is how you get babies God designed that act for humans made in his image for marriage, and babies are supposed to be the product of divine institution two, so that now we're in three. They're more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, two times more likely to suffer obesity, and two times more likely to drop out of school. That's the numbers from from just the U.S. Census Bureau and some other things, checking out um, correlations between life behaviors and risk behaviors and 
fatherlessness. What about the benefits to women? We hear about patriarchy is bad, and we have experiences. Lots of people have experiences where you have an overbearing, uh, violent man who is abusive to his wife and to his children, and we just, we, we, it's a horror when you have a husband who is out of control, but he's portrayed on Lifetime as the norm. Norm is the man who is a husband, and Norm is abusive to his wife and kids. That's the way the feminist movement often will portray it. But the numbers don't really work for that. And I believe women can do math. I know there's a movement out there that say women can't do math. Women can do math. I was taught by women math teachers almost my entire life, and they were very patient with me. But here's the math. Mothers get a host of benefits when fathers are involved during pregnancy and in raising their children. They're more likely to receive prenatal care. They're less likely to smoke during pregnancy. They have healthier births. They're lower risk of postpartum stress. Lower risk of postpartum depression, lower parenting stress, more leisure time, higher marital satisfaction. And this was a study also that was done just based on the, the, the population. Now, I'm not saying that if your dad is home, you're going to have these benefits. I'm saying that houses where fathers are home are more likely to have these benefits by the numbers. Understand what we're saying. It's math. I'm not talking about your house. I'm talking about the way life is, and we're kind of summarizing, which is what a lot of the Proverbs do. What about the um, question of if dad is home with the kids? That's if dad is home and the benefit to the wife. What if dad is home with the kids? Well, the, the same um, fatherhood initiative, National Fatherhood Initiative, said that children with involved fathers have a strong foundation for child well-being, that are, they're at a lower risk for a host of poor childhood outcomes. Again, infant mortality, low birth weight, emotional and behavioral problems, and neglect and abuse, injury, obesity, poor school performance, teen pregnancy, incarceration as juveniles, alcohol and substance abuse, criminal activity, and suicide. The numbers, it, this is, they're just summarizing the numbers. Now, I'm showing you their infographic. I haven't given you the data, the statistics. We'll close with some of that today. But what I'm trying to show you is this is kind of a no-brainer. If you have a stable situation that God designed for kids to grow up in, then you ought to have stable outcomes of God's design, like these health benefits and other things, health and crime. And how does this affect human government? How does this discussion affect human government? If you govern yourself and you stay home, dads, with your kids, I mean, not home from work, I mean, you stay and you raise your kids and build a family as God designed, and you take that act of government on yourself, what happens is the kids don't enter into the civil criminal justice system from that function of government. Incarceration goes way down. The budget, the tax dollar to feed people in prison goes way down. You see what happens? If um, we aren't growing up um, without fathers and there's the benefit of economic security, we have stability of better education, better training, better go to work, Dad works, dad gets the kid into work. You know, old way was dad would apprentice his son or pass him to another man to apprentice him. He'd, he'd enter his majority as a trained man who could do a work to, to raise a family with, to, to feed him. In that, in that model, obviously, all the needed um, transfer payments, all the needed safety net in the welfare system, that goes way down. All the entitlement stuff, because... We're producing, we're not sucking off of the, off of the government um, dole. That, that kind of, see, there are all kinds of things that happen if dad is home. And, and again, this is, 
I'm asking you to think a little bit more sociologically now than personally about your life, please. Think sociologically. Think about the entire civilization. If we have it as a norm that fathers stay with their wives and they train the children together, what happens? I'm not saying it's all good. There is sin in every case. There are the horrors and travesties of sin. But in terms of the civilization, you can see there are all kinds of impacts on government because what's happened is we're decentralizing. Individuals are making choices. Individuals are doing the right thing. They're self-governing. And so you don't need this overwhelming uh, nanny state that we're being forced down our throats right now. And that's, this is where, see, this is God and government. Govern yourself and nobody needs to govern you. Your kids learn to fly and they don't need somebody to pull them along through life. They're doing what they've been called to do. Well, um, that's just the numbers from one study, the National Fatherhood Initiative. I would check out their website. I think it's a, a, a valuable thing to look at and how we can help. This topic of fatherlessness is going to touch us, not so much necessarily in the church family uh, as, as much as it will if we're in the schools, if we're dealing with the people in our culture. If you're sharing Christ with the poor, you are going to be sharing with people who don't have their dad or the mom, or any stability there. God designed, by the way, I, I call it DI5, however you count it. I call the local church a divine institution because it's patterned on divine institution three, family, household. God calls us the household of the faith. We're brothers and sisters. It's household, the way the local church works. There's a surrogacy that God designed in the church for people who don't have their parents. We take care of widows and orphans. We are a surrogate family, and we need to think that way. Well, I've got my, my kids to take care of. That's right. We have, other, uh, we have God's other children to take care of, too. And that's the alternative to the secular nanny state, in part, is the local church. All right, Proverbs 1.8. If you want to turn to Proverbs, the way I would do that, we'll get, we, those are the numbers. Now let's go to the Bible and see the real wisdom and why the numbers are the way they are. The way I find Proverbs is I turn about to the middle of my Bible, and the way this Bible's printed with the stuff in the back, that, that almost gets me almost always to Song of Solomon. So I got to go back a little bit to Proverbs. Maybe you got to the Psalms or even to Isaiah. You got to go back. Uh, from Isaiah, you go backward. From the Psalms, you go forward. That's where the Proverbs are. And we've done Proverbs together. It's the first thing I taught verse by verse when we came here. And um, I owe you uh, several chapters of the of the kind of one-liner Proverbs. But we went through the long poems especially in painstaking detail. And Proverbs chapter 1 is that kind of proverb. It's a long poem. And it is after the prologue, verses 1 through 7, where he defines wisdom, we're now getting to what Solomon is doing with his collection of Proverbs. Verse 1 of Proverbs 1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And chapters 1 through 9 are long poems written by Solomon to train his sons to love wisdom. To train his sons to love wisdom. And as you know, therefore, the king training the crown prince, this is training, ruler, training for rulership. This is instruction to rule. And how did I think you and I are supposed to rule right now? We have volition. We have the capacity to make individual choices with the things God has given us to please God. That is government. You govern yourself for God's sake, and that's what requires wisdom. That's why you need wisdom, the skill to do that. So when you get to Proverbs 1.8, it says in the English, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. In my translation, hear, my son, the training of your father, the Musar, training, and do not forsake the Torah. 
the Torah, the, the instruction of your mother. Hopefully you know that one of the names for the first five books of Moses, we call it the Torah. Hopefully you know that typically we translate that word law. That's the word here that mother has to offer, the training, the Torah of your mother. Hear, my son, the training of your father. Do not neglect the Torah of your mother. You could say, well, great, great summary. You know, let's move on. He's going to build to something here, and I want you to see this is going to connect directly to civil government. This is going to connect directly to civil government. It starts with you and God and then to the household and how mom and dad equip you to serve God. That's what Solomon's doing here. So as we watch it, Proverbs 1.8, Hear, my son, the training of your father. Do not neglect the Torah, the Torah of your mother. For a graceful wreath they are for your head and a necklace for your throat. I've told you this before long ago. Some of you are still here. The word for throat here is pretty much used by Solomon for the most part in the Bible, this particular word. There are several words for throat. One of them is nephesh, actually, which we also translate soul. Throat can mean appetite. This word is pronounced gargarot. Gargarot. And it's onomatopoetic. It's your gargler. <laughs> it's, it's, your, it's the inside. But it's used to describe wearing a necklace on the outside all through the Proverbs when it's used just a few times. I think that's kind of neat that that's the Hebrew word, and it means the sound that your throat makes. It's gargaroth. All right. Now, if you're like me, when you read Proverbs 1, verse 8, Hear, my son, the training of your father. Do not neglect the instruction of your mother. For they are a graceful wreath for your head and a necklace for your throat. When you read that. You know what it means. It means listen to your parents because their instruction will benefit you, right? That's what he's saying. Listen to it because there's a benefit. But do you think how to apply that thing? We don't. We keep reading. We just go on. We will keep reading. I promise. Where's the microphone? Do you, do you still have it? Okay, good. I see it. I see it. We're going we're to need that in a minute. So, well, thank you. Actually, hang on to it. You can, you can be the mic man. Okay. All right. We read it, we read through, and we, we, you know. But think about this, the application for children. Dad is teaching his son to value what, what mom and dad have to say. He's saying, value this. That's not the way you present a product to adults. I mean, well, the advertisers do. But when you're an artist, you don't say, I've made the best painting in the world. You don't. You just show them the painting. And they can make their decision. Right? That's how we want to do. We don't want to promote ourselves and say, this is good stuff. Come get this. But to train children, King Solomon says, boys, this is the good stuff and you need to get it. Now think about the way children are being taught to value right there. They're being given a scale of values of their parents' instruction. This is the good stuff. See, we just read through and we don't think about the implications and how this applies to our lives. The kid needs the value that the training is getting. What is wrong with the children? What is their problem? They will not value the training that they're being given. They don't value it. They're brought to church. Then we wait until they're done. We can leave and go do something we want to do. They don't value it. They haven't been trained to love God and the things of God. Right there, he's doing it here. Does this com command, though, does this passage in verses 8 and 9 sound like government to you? 
He says, listen to your parents' instruction, for it's of value to you. Does it sound like government? No, we don't think of government. We don't think the government section in the, in the newspaper or on the, the website. We don't think of, of government, that what is the national budget and what are they doing with uh, international affairs and those kinds of things of government. I think you'll agree with me that this passage sounds more like the transmission of wealth from one generation to the next. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, listen to our teaching because it will set you up. It's a wreath about your head and a, and a, a necklace about your throat. It's, it's setting you up with riches. You're, you're a wealthy and empowered person is the picture. And it happens all through in Proverbs. It's more about the transmission of wealth from one generation to the next. And so the transmission of wisdom is presented as parents showering their children with priceless riches. That's the theme of the teaching all through Proverbs. This is priceless to you. I still don't see government, right? How does this touch government? I'm not going to listen. Well, you should listen. This is a value to you. How does this touch government? Well, this gift of instruction is seen as setting the child up for a privileged life. And the government doesn't have to get involved with this child because he's wise, because he's humble, because he serves God, because he's not attacking people, because he's not hurting people, because he's not shooting up schools. The government doesn't have to regulate this person because he's not causing a problem to the government in a righteous government. That's the way this is touching as you watch it. So how does the training of dad and mom connect to government? We'll read on in Proverbs 1.10. In verse 10 it says, My son, if sinners persuade or pressure you, patha, if they pressure you, do not ava, do not consent. Again, I just read Proverbs 1 the other day. You just read through. Yeah, and so we change topics from the value of the teaching to what we want you to do if bad guys come along with bad ideas and they try to entice you. If somebody in a godless lifestyle comes to you and says, let's practice godlessness, don't do it. Don't join with them. You don't need to adopt their godlessness. They need to adopt your godliness. They need to serve God. And so don't, don't go with them. And this is the idea of peer pressure. And you've heard me say this. People are porous. We are, we are connected. We make connections. We want to connect. We're made for interpersonal relationship. And that's where a lot of the trouble happens. We know that the problem for kids is their peers are idiots, and they are pressured by their peers to become an idiot themselves. And that's the problem of the generational issue. You're young. You're gullible. You don't know what you don't know, but you know what you want. You, you know and then you start saying, well, my parents don't understand how to work with our electronics, and so we know so much better than them, and it's just the foolishness of youth. And tragically, most humans probably come out of this just about too late to do any good for major life decisions. There's a whole train of train wreck behind them and mess and destruction and broken lives because they never learned the wisdom that, that Solomon is trying to give his kids here early on. See, you don't need to listen to your friends. You don't learn the truth from your friends. You learn the truth from your parents as the design. Now, if your friends learn the truth from their parents and you don't have parents teaching the truth, then you need to get, by proxy, the wisdom of your friends' parents that they gave them the truth. And that's discipling, and that's how you do as a kid. 
But just understand, the idea is that bad people outside of the household are going to try to persuade you and entice you with peer pressure, with, with offers of, of money or reward or something you desire. Don't follow them. And does everybody notice the volitional component that is being trained hand over hand in verse 10? There is a decision, a decision that's being taught by Solomon, you know, teaching his son in verse 10. What's the decision? If the sinner comes along and entices you, hey, you're going to be out there swimming. You're going to be in the water, but you got to swim. There is a problem. There are the, the bad influences out there, but you have to learn to reject it. The volitional decision, the component that is being trained is that you choose no when people try to entice you to join them in their sin. What a phenomenal thought. In other words, dad is teaching his son first to value his teaching And then the first thing he says is a proper use of your volition. And you need to make the right choice when someone comes along and says, let's make the wrong choice. Don't follow them. Don't don't consent. The concept of consent goes directly to conscience. Now, how do kids try to get their friends or how do bad actors try to get people to join them? What are the methods they use? They use various persuasive appeals. They appeal to social norms they appeal to everybody's doing it. They appeal to, well, you, we'll, you can be one of us if you will join in doing this with us. All the different ways that prey on our weakness. And what Solomon's doing here is giving strength. There's a clear decision to make. You can make the, ca- the category, this is a sinful thing that's being invited. I'm going to say no. And it's training the volition. That's what I'm saying in Ephesians 6.4, that the training of children is to equip them. The parenting task is to equip them to make decisions for God. To use their volition, divine institution one. So mom and dad have wisdom that will immediately sever their child from the errors of their generation. And this is what we can summarize and say, that child is trained. These children, unfortunately, are not for whatever reason. This one's trained. It knew the right choice without, without having to learn the hard way. There's a lot of learning the hard way. Right? And you learn the hard way as a kid, and it's maybe a spanking. Learn the hard way as an adult, and the government's involved. And a lifelong uh, conscience. All right. I want to hear, let's see. Let's do a little interactive work here, if you would. Dad and mom are now going to kind of present a case study and don't consent to join sinners. And it's it's crazy, the suggestion here in Proverbs 1, the one that he makes. Maybe you know it's the ambush lying in wait for innocent blood. Can I have a mother read for us? And I'll put the verse on the screen, but we need to hear from the Torah, the instruction of mother, if they say come with us. Can someone help us that wants to volunteer to read? Somebody, there's not many moms here. Um, it's actually a pretty small crew today, but could someone read for us, Linda? Would you, would you mind? Okay. It's up here. If they say. If they, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. Okay, so there's the if of verse 10, if sinners entice you. 
So notice the teaching. He gave a principle of sinners and tithes, don't consent. And now he teaches them an illustration that is an extrapolation of the principle if you have this thing happen. So mom and dad in the portrayal in verse 8 are training their son with their instruction. So mom says, if this happens, by the way, I've portrayed it today. Rusty, you might as well help us with what dad has to say. Can you read for us? Right up here. Verse 15. Verse 15. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. And they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privily for their own lives. So are the ways of every one that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. All right, mom and dad, having a training session with their son, have given them a principle in verse 10 and then illustrated it in verses 11 through 19. It's kind of an absurd illustration. Son, um, don't join the highway robbers that cut people's throats and take their money. Oh, okay, mom, thanks. You know, like, but what's happened here? is you've got his imagination. You're telling him a, a kind of a narrative. You're kind of painting a picture of what we mean by sinners entice you to walk away from God in a way that will de- destroy you. And the illustration goes directly to civil government. What does it say? They ambush, they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. If you kill people under this law, you will be killed by the state. They will execute you on the, on the basis of two witnesses in perfect godly righteousness. They will execute you, Genesis 9-6. You are killing yourself by killing someone else and saying, I'm going to enrich myself. So he gives you the rationale from the law. He gives you the rationale for consequence. And mom and dad are offering training that is very, very valuable, as he said in verse 10. So mom and dad... I have three things I want to challenge you with. Bring the quality. Bring the quality. This is an application of verses 8 and 9. The instruction of dad and the Torah of mother, the law of mother, this is supposed to be bringing riches to this child. So make sure your training is Ephesians 6, 4, quality training. You're not training them to just go through life, basic life skills. This is how we make our bed. We're training them to make our bed because God's a God of order and we serve him and we want to live our lives like he wants us to live. Make sure your training is quality. If it's not wisdom, it will not have the value Solomon's talking about. So you need to be the kind of person that has the wisdom to give. You need to be the kind of person that knows that what I have to say is of value. And the reason you know it is because you got it from God, and that's where the value is. Very important. Solomon is prophetically writing the word of God here, is he not? And it has infinite value as God's word. The second challenge is to tell them about the quality. Tell them that there's quality here just like verse 10 does, or verse, verse 9. The value of what I'm going to teach you that you need to listen to is that it will benefit you and bless you. Tell them there's good teaching here. There's important quality for you to gain. A lot of Proverbs is instruction about valuing instruction. I'll say it again. A lot of the wisdom in Proverbs is, in its instruction is the value of instruction. Value it. Want it. 
So you tell them about the quality. I wouldn't have thought that as a how-to, except that Proverbs says it. Tell them of the quality of the instruction so that they learn to value it. Children have to be taught to value what's valuable, don't they? They have to be taught to value what's valuable. This may or may not have happened in a household that I'm fairly familiar with. Fist fight over a $10 bill. Easily understandable. $10 bill, that's, that's value. It's, it's worth less now than it used to be, <laughs> but it's got value. Fist fight over a $10 bill. That's mine. No, that's mine. I, t- I know you stole it. No, I, I didn't steal it. I got ironed it, and we have a fist fight. That's a little much. I wouldn't say it's a fist fight, but let's just go with my illustration of fist fight. There's a problem of value happening in the fist fight over the $10 bill. If all we care about is money, then fight on. But if you've got a God who loves you, who's called you to serve him, and you love him by obeying him, you're not going to do this. You're not going to go to war over money with your brother. You're going to, First John, love your brother because you love God. And so how can you, if you don't love your brother, how can you say you love God? You love God, so you, you're going to figure this out and not go to just hatred over money. But you can imagine how little kids, like, that's a big deal. <laughs> so what you have to do with kids is we have to teach them to think. So you give them, you, so dad captivates his imagination with this don't lie and wait for an innocent blood thing. By the way, Proverbs 1, the, the long discussion we just read with, with Rusty and Linda about training children. It's not about highway robbery. It's not about a conspiracy to murder, right? That's the illustration of how you can get into crime or into bad decisions from the influence of your peers. Don't do that. Pick better peers, right? So, oh, but, the, but we get each other. Yeah. So you need, you need them to get the Lord or get, get out, get away, because it doesn't matter that you feel uh, accepted compared to um, walking with God and his righteousness. So you teach them to think. Proverbs 1, 8, 8 through 19 is a seemingly absurd example to capture the child's imagination, to think it through. And it becomes a pattern for all of peer interactions. It's not just about waiting and lying in wait for innocent blood, but it does touch on the question of crime. You can see that the state gets involved pretty quickly when you're uh, murdering the innocent. I told you I had some statistics for you as we close. I'm going to talk about fatherlessness and crime. Let's see if I can pull this PDF up for you. There it is. And um, I'll try to make it bigger on my screen and then share it. Oh, it won't get bigger. Okay. But I will share it. This is from the American First uh, Policy Initiative, or whatever it is, AFPI. Um, and it's a product, fatherless and crime, Fatherlessness and Crime, from August of 2022, from this organization, American, America First Policy Institute. I don't know about them, but I've looked at Jack Brewer a little bit, who wrote this. And he says, an absent father affects all aspects of a child's life, from sociocognitive and socioemotional development to academic performance. In addition, fatherlessness has a negative influence on criminal and delinquent behavior. 
And so he gave you that same number we just got from the Fatherhood Initiative. 18.4 million children in the United States live without their biological father or any father or, or adoptive father or stepfather. 23% of the children in the United States are raised by a single parent. And that's more than three times the world average of children raised by a single parent. America is the worst offender in the world of single parenthood. Now, how is that possible? Economics. It's an impoverishment to go to two households instead of one, to two, two heating bills, two, two roofs, two, you know, whatever. Together, we can, four hands making a living instead of just two is the issue. And here in America, we have the, the freedom. We're, we're rich, so we impoverish ourselves. Um, sure. This is the highest rate of any country in the world. Fatherless children are more likely to suffer from psychosocial development issues, live in poverty, drop out of school, engage in school violence, abuse substances, and enter the juvenile justice system. Approximately 41% of children are born to unwed mothers. For women under age 30, the out-of-wedlock rate increases to 53%. Single fathers are absent from approximately 80% of single-parent homes. So the risk factors, 63% of youth suicide victims are from fatherless homes. Did you know that? I didn't know that. 90% of all homeless and runaway children come from fatherless homes. 90%. 70%, and I thought that they ran away because dad's mean to them. No, they run away because dad's not there. They go find a dad. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions and 85% of youth in prisons come from fatherless homes. Wow. 70% in state of, of, of kids on the state operate institutions like group homes and so forth. 85% of youth in prisons are from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. This is numbers. This is, the, the facts don't care about our feelings. This is how it is. So you know, it's, it's toxic masculinity. A father who's a patriarch is going uh, to rule over people too much, and then he's going to feel like he can go, the boy will feel like he can go do whatever he wants and become a rapist. No. The absence of fatherhood predicts rapist, not the other way around. Fatherless children are six times more likely to live in poverty and commit criminal acts than children raised in dual parent households. Approximately 85% of children with behavioral disorders have been raised in fatherless homes 20 times the national average. Fatherless children and juvenile delinquency, fatherless children are three times more likely to be behind bars by the time they're 30 years old, three times more likely. Fatherless children are more likely to suffer from alcohol and substance abuse, participate in school violence, engage in impulsive delinquent behavior. From 1980 to 2010, the arrest data for fatherless boys ages 10 to 14 increased by 50%. See, there's this trend in our culture. We're just, it's Darwinism. We're just animals. We have sex. We, the babies are born, you know, whatever. And we don't have the household. And so DI3 is completely missing is the point. Most adolescents who enter the justice system have suffered from parental abandonment, substance abuse, or dysfunctional household. In a study of 75 juvenile delinquents, 66% experienced fatherlessness, 20% had never lived with their father, 25% had an alcoholic father. Minimal involvement from parents, unstable family dynamics, the development of attachment issues, all common consequences of fatherless home contribute to increased risk of juvenile delinquency. And fatherless children are 20 times more likely to be incarcerated than children raised in dual parent households. Who am I talking to in this? I'm talking to fathers. I'm not talking to kids that are raised in a fatherless home. I'm talking to fathers. You know the story of Ben Carson, right? He's a, the brain surgeon whose brother's a rocket scientist. 
Ben Carson's raised in a fatherless home, but his mother took the role. She, she said, You're, we're going to do this right. And she, was, she, she provided DI3 without a father. You can do it. It's just, it's not being done. We've delegated to the state that the parent, the state raises the kids. Mom's just doing the best she can. We've given up government. And so now we're slaves. School violence, 71% of teachers and 90% of law enforcement officials state that the lack of parental supervision at home is a major factor that contributes to school violence. In the study of 56 school shootings, only 10 of the shooters, that's 80, 18%, were raised in a stable home with both biological parents. 82%, that's the other part, grew up in either an unstable family environment or grew up without both biological parents. I don't need these numbers to know this is true because I have God's word and it tells me the way, the way this works. It's called wisdom. What is the point? The point, beloved, is that there is a governmental component in Divine Institution 3 that touches civil government. And it's one of the great parts of the teaching of parenthood in the Bible. Is if you do your job with your kids, they do not enter interaction with the government, with the criminal side of the civil government. Duh. The numbers are horrible. The time in which you live is, you know. And so what, what do we do with this? Well, we, we reinforce that, that there's a right way to live. When, when you're told that um, parents don't, fathers don't, you don't need two parents, a father and a mother. You could be two, a mother and a mother and a father and a father. That's not God's design. Let's get some numbers on that. We don't have enough data right now, but the numbers are going to be bad. But, well, it doesn't have to be marriage. No, marriage is the design. That's the stability that provides the, the household. Well, but, but, hey, God's way is the best, and he tells you what he wants because he loves you. So once we accept, accept that, once we establish that, now what do we do? Well, we have compassion. I know lots of young men who didn't have their fathers train them, who have done well. But they had other people train them. They had the wisdom, the humility to go seek some instruction, and they got it. Compassion. This father, fatherhood initiative, this America First Institute thing, that these organizations seem to be interested in helping solve the problem. One is to educate the fathers, be a dad. The other is you may be born to a family that didn't do it right. You may be living in a life where it's not how it should be, and some of these statistics, you, you should be part of those statistics somehow. Why don't you break the cycle? Why don't you say, as for me and my house, when I get one, we'll serve the Lord. Wisdom is God's gift to us if we want it, and he promises to give it abundantly if we ask. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word, for the truth that we've seen borne out. We've seen numbers confirming the things that you've said in the scriptures. That's always fun when um, we can observe in history the effects of what you've told us according to your design. Father, I pray for our young people. Our young people have to make decisions to please you, and we can't decide for them, and that's hard for us. We thank you that as loving parents, we have these opportunities and resources. I pray for the resources of wisdom for moms and dads, for children, to embrace you, to walk with you as they should, to live their lives to please you. We know that that, we have a picture of what that looks like in your son. But we need your spirit to work in us, and we need your wisdom to do it. 
Father, those in our church family and around us who don't have their dad, who didn't grow up in the, in the, the fear and instruction of the Lord and, and what we've got in Ephesians 6, we pray for you to make up what was lacking. It's not their fault that their parents were not there and didn't know what they were doing. God, grace them out. Bless them, strengthen them, encourage them, equip them, help them get, get wise, get your wisdom and walk with you. Father, for us who were blessed by your grace to have fathers and mothers that took care of us and loved us and nurtured us, give us the compassion and the resources to help those who didn't. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.